before we broke this morning for lunch, we started the topic of generosity as part of the, the graduated path of the graduated discourse. And we talked about, on the one hand, generosity has to be something done voluntarily, and it's, it's basically your exposure to freedom of choice at an early age. And that the Buddha wanted to protect that attitude of the freedom of your choice. However, I think I told you, I mentioned the, the question that the king asked the Buddha, you know, to whom should a gift be given? And the Buddha said, where you feel inspired. But then the king went on to say, where, when a gift is given, does it get the best fruit? Now the Buddha said, that, that's a different question. There's a skill to generosity. If you want to develop it as a skill, it turns out there, there are four aspects that you want to look at. The first is your motivation. Why are you giving? What do you expect to get out of this? Secondly, your attitude while you're giving. The third is to whom you sh should give the gift. Who is it most skillful to give it to? And the fourth, what kinds of gifts are good to give? Um, so, for example, under motivation, there's one sutta where the, the Buddha is talking about the different levels of motivation. And the very lowest level of motivation is you give a gift seeking your own profit, as I said, with a mind attached to the reward, seeking to store it up for yourself in the future. I will enjoy this after death. Um, now this is basically you're giving with the hope of getting it back with interest, um, if not in this lifetime, in a future lifetime. When I was staying at Watasokaram in John Lee's monastery in Thailand, there was a nun who was in charge of having a, a hut built, a meditation hut. And she was there every day at the, at the work site, making sure that everything was done really nicely. And it was a very nice hut. And I mentioned to her one time, I said, I guess this is your, going to be your Deva Palace in your next lifetime? She said, oh no, I've already got my Deva Palace. This is my vacation home. <laughs> so, but that is the lowest of the motivations. Um, but it's still better than not giving. In other words, you say, okay, I will get something out of this, but it's good to give, even though you're expecting that you're going to get it back. Um, the second motivation higher than that is just simply giving is a good thing to do. It's, it's, it feels like a good, a good thing. It seems right to give something. What's interesting is the next higher motivation higher than that is that this is something that was done by, by ancestors in the past, and it would be bad for me to not let this particular tradition fall away. Now, there's if your parents and your grandparents have a generous people, you, you don't want to let that family tradition fall away. You want to keep it up. Higher than that is the thought, I am well off, these people are not well off, it's not right that I have all this stuff and they, well, I let them go without. I should be able to share the, ex, you know, the extra that I've got. Higher than that is you take inspiration from the great sacrifices that were made by people in the past. Um, back in 1997 when there was that big, big collapse of the economy in Thailand, the Queen of Thailand set up uh, food distribution tents all over Bangkok. So anybody was without a meal, anybody couldn't afford a meal, you could go to these distribution tents and get a good meal. And she's just, you know, a lot of money went into just being generous at that point. And so you think about that and you say, well, I'd like to be, give a really big gift someday. That's another motivation. And then finally, the highest motivation is that the gift is given, it makes my mind serene. I feel gratified and I feel joy. 
that's a higher motivation still. In other words, it feels really good. You see that you've had something, now it's in somebody else's hands, they can make use of it. You feel that you've helped, basically you've helped others thrive in the world. But then, I made a mistake just now, even higher than that is somebody, this is a natural expression of the mind. Now at that point, it's, you know, the mind has been very well trained. And it just feels natural. You get something, you want to share it, without really having to think about it that much. Um, back when the, the Laotian Lundaos um, fell, Ajahn Mahab would, would, on a regular basis, take people out to give donations to the people in the, in the Laotian refugee camps. And he said, it just, just seemed like a natural thing to do. You have people in the camps and they're starving and they're, they're cold. You want to make sure they have blankets, you want to make sure they have food. And as he said, he didn't need the merit from that, but it just seemed just a natural expression of his mind. So we're talking about higher and higher levels of motivation. The higher the level of motivation, then the higher the rewards. So it's interesting that when you're thinking about the reward, that's the lowest, <laughs> that's the lowest level. But you're going to get the rewards anyhow, regardless of whether you're thinking of them or not. And so the, the, the level of motivation gets higher and higher as you're focusing more and more on the training of the mind, what this does for your mind, and not so much what you're going to be getting out of in the future. So those are different levels of motivation when you're trying to think about being, being generous, thinking of it as a skill. Higher Then the next attitude is your attitude while you're giving it. In other words, you give attentively, you're, you know, you pay attention to what you're doing, you're not just kind of casually dropping it off. You give with the conviction that something good is going to come of this, either in the future or in the present moment. You're not just going through the motions. Um, and then finally you give with empathy. You have a sense of empathy for the person who's receiving it. In other words, you want to give them a gift that actually will help them. You feel the question of to whom to give, the Buddha says, ideally give to those who are without passion, aversion, or delusion, or those who are practicing for the purpose of getting rid of passion, aversion, and delusion. And this gets back to that question of who, who do you want to give to, or where it should be given, where you feel that it would be well used. Because there's some people who give a gift to and they, they turn around and they use it to buy alcohol or something and you don't feel quite so good about it. If you give it to someone who's trying to get rid of passion, aversion, and delusion, you're bound to be more likely to approve of what they do with the gift. And then finally, in terms of what gift is good to give, you try to give in season. In other words, you don't give scarves and gloves in the middle of the summer. <laughs> you give without adversely reflecting yourself or others. In other words, you don't steal in order to give or you don't abuse somebody in order to get something from them to then to give to somebody else. And at the same time, you don't give so much that you're harming yourself. There's an interesting rule in the canon, in, in the monk's rules, that if there's a, a family who is just, you know, just beginning to gain confidence in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, and they just want to, it seems like they want to give away everything, the monks have to show restraint in going by, by that person's house. If one person has been, monk has been by that house, he has to tell the other monks, okay, I've already been by that house, don't go harass them because they might end up giving much more than they, than they can really afford. So you have to, as we as recipients of the gifts, have to keep that in mind as well. We don't want to have people giving to the point where they're, they're harming themselves. So those are some of the things that you want to think about as you approach generosity as a skill. In other words, you look at your motivation, you look at the attitude you have while you're giving, 
the question of whom to give and the question of what kind of gift is good to give. Any questions on any of those points? Yes. Perfectly fine. Yeah. It's hard. Well, again, the Buddha always says, give where you feel inspired. But the question in terms of where you would probably get, you know, what has the biggest reward? Then I number one. Anyone need to get the reward? Well, no, but, yeah. <laughs> well, you try to have several motivations. <laughs> Forrester John, a John Munn, student of a John Munn, who one time gave a Dharma talk. It's always stuck with me. He said, you know, in Thailand it, it's very different because here, here people come to Buddhism through the meditation first, and then they learn about the precepts, and then they learn about generosity. Whereas in Thailand you start out with the generosity, go to the precepts, and then finally meditation. And so you get a lot of people who just want to be generous. They say, I don't want to bother with this other stuff. Um, they say, Nirvana, Nirvana can wait. I'd like, I'd like to see a little bit some of the more pleasant parts of the universe before I, before I leave. And so when John 1 would give a Dharma talk, he says, people who are generous but do not observe the precepts or meditate are bound to be reborn as a dog in an American house. <laughs> All the comforts you could think of, but you don't know anything. You know? <laughs> If you observe the precepts and are generous but don't meditate, then you're bound to be born as a human being, well off, but you don't have the wisdom to use your wealth well, you can actually end up causing yourself a lot of harm. We've seen a lot of people who are wealthy but then use that money in ways that are actually harmful to themselves. If you want to be human being, wealthy, and safe, then you have to meditate too. That's the combination that he recommended. Another time I was giving a talk on these levels of motivation, and there was a Thai woman down in, in San Diego who had listened to both Dharma talks. And at the end of the second one, she started crying. She said, look, according to what you just said, I'm, I've got the lowest motivation for giving, and I'm going to be redorn as a dog. <laughs> and I said, well, you've got your, still got your chance to improve. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya. Angut, Anguttara Nikaya. It's in Handful of Leaves. Um, in the new edition, it's Handful of Leaves, Volume th 4. It's Anguttara 749. Yes. Um, one thing I was curious about for, for a monk who is Okay, just as the donor is supposed to be attentive, the monk has to be attentive too. You don't sit there and kind of looking the other way while they're putting the food in your bowl. And you show an attitude of respect to the donor. Um, ideally, when you go on alms round, you don't skip houses. In other words, okay, this house gives good food, that house doesn't give good food. <laughs> but this house gives good food. You don't skip the middle house. <laughs> Those are some of the things we're taught. Then on top of that, there's, 
what always struck me was many times the people who were actually most generous were some of the poorer people in the neighborhood. And to be the recipient of a poor person's generosity is quite an experience. There was this one couple in particular, I remember, that they had just gotten married, they lived in a little hut that was just big enough for the two of them to lie down in, and there was a little makeshift kitchen out back. And almost every day they had a little piece of dried sausage or dried fish or something to put in my bowl. And so I got back to the monastery, and, I, and John Fuang used to say that you know, monks who live off the generosity of other people but then don't practice have the likelihood of being reborn as water buffaloes the next time around. <laughs> I want to avoid that. <laughs> and then on top of that, you're the beneficiary of a poor person's generosity. Okay, that's, that's, that's an awfully valuable piece of sausage there. So, got to practice. So that's the attitude we're taught. Moral compunction, in what sense? Okay, it depends on why you feel you have to give. Why, what kind of compunction? I mean, there's one where the Buddha said, you're on the reflection that giving is a good thing to do, I should do it. That's, that's, that's a relatively good motivation. Yes? That doesn't count as a gift. No. <laughs> but but um, there have been a couple of times I've, we discussed this with one of the groups I teach down in Southern California, and there's the issue of how to receive a gift. You always try to receive it in good grace. The fact that someone has gone out of the way to give you something, you don't say, well, you, know, it's a, you don't reject the gift. Um, you don't refuse it out of fear that you're being placed in debt to the other person. Just say, okay, I appreciate your generosity. Leave it that. But if it's a bribe, that's not a gift. And even if it's not, you know, you know, obviously a bribe, but there are sometimes there's a lot of emotional stuff that comes along with this. And this is another thing we're taught as monks, is that once the layperson is given a gift, we don't have to use it now we shouldn't use it for a cause that you know if they give a gift specifically for some, for some one one project and you use it for another project that's not good but if they give something but you say this is not I don't really need this or I can't use this you're perfectly free to pass it on in other words part of generosity is really give up the gift yeah right mm -hmm. yeah this hand over here We're obligated. Good, good cause. Yeah. Well, as someone said, the taxes are the price we pay for civilization. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And also choose people who will use the tax money well. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, if, I, if I'm allergic to it, I will not eat it. I'll pass it on to somebody else who's not allergic to it. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, this is why it's so embarrassing going down that table with everybody sitting there watching. You know, you know. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, the fact that you've given, okay, you, you've given, you've gotten the merit that comes from that. Um, one thing we're not allowed, of course, the monks are not allowed to touch money, so if someone puts money in your bowl, you're supposed to tell them to please take it out, but can't accept it. I know, well, <laughs> there are a lot of things that get put in monks' bowls. Um, there's a story behind this. There was an <clears throat> army colonel back in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s, who died on the operating table and then came back. And apparently he had, he was, he, he the story he tells was he was taken to this kind of clearing room, it was like a police police station, place where there was a guy behind a desk and a ledger on the desk. And, you know, one of the hell guardians had taken him there. And the police sergeant looked at it and said, well, no, this person, it's not, it's not the time for him to die yet, take him back. And so while they were discussing this, he was looking at the ledger and he saw not only his name with the date, but also names of friends with dates. And so at first he didn't say anything when he came back, but then one of his di friends died on the date that was next to his name. So he said, I better start telling people. So he told the different people whose names he had seen and what date was next to their name. And then there was one case where he went to the funeral of the guy who had died right around the date that he would, they'd seen in the ledger. And he mentioned this to the relatives. And the relatives says, no wonder. He suddenly became very serious and started going to the temple and making merit. And, <laughs> and word of this started getting around. He started giving public talks and the talks were recorded. And then it so happened that he died on the date that was very near the date that he'd seen on the ledger. And then all of a sudden his tapes became bestsellers. And that was back in the days when cassette tapes were sold on these little tables by the side of the road in Bangkok, and you'd see his tapes, tapes all over the place. And one of the things he had mentioned was that in this particular clearing room, there were people who were, you know, there were some people lacked clothing, some people lacked food, other people had food, other people had clothing, and depending on whether how they'd been generous in the, in the before they died. And he said the people who were suffering the most were the ones who didn't have any water. They had never given water. Now up to that point, I had never received water in my bowl. All of a sudden, half my bowl. <laughs> These little plastic bags of water with it tied up. And you, you, know, you, never, you don't know where this water came from, so you didn't dare use it. <laughs> I mean, you'd use it to wash your bowl mainly, but you wouldn't drink it. And so that, and to this day, you will still, when you go around, if you go for alms in Bangkok, you get lots of little bags of water based on this guy's talks. Mm -hmm. That's that's the lowest kind of com understanding of karma is it's kind of tit for tat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is strange. Mm -hmm. Yes. Monks giving to lay people? It's really not right, because once something has been given to a monk, he's not supposed to share it with lay people except, except for his parents. So. 
even for a good cause. Now, if he gets money from an independent source, in other words, money that was not given to him because he was a monk, like we have a couple of cases in the, the monastery. Um, <laughs> we had this one monk who, prior to becoming a monk, was an, a model for um, commercials. And so he was getting this annual, fee, um, what, what do you call it? Well, he's getting the he's getting the royalties. He's getting the royalties, and so that money he could use for whatever he wanted to. But something that's given to a monk because he's a monk, you can't share that with lay people, except for your parents. Okay, um, I know some monks who will have it given to, say, a monastery or some other, other Buddhist organization, the royalties. Okay, that's generosity. The next talk was a talk on virtue. And when the Buddha talked about virtue, he was primarily talking about the five precepts, no killing, no stealing, no illicit sex, no lying, and no taking of intoxicants. Each of these, he said, should be taken as a precept, i.e. the sense that you don't do them under any circumstances. No room for white lies, no room for killing pests in the house. Um, no room for just a little bit of alcohol. And if I told you about when I was teaching in France, question about wine came up. So said, this precept against drinking, is it, does it mean no drinking at all or no drinking to the point of drunkenness? And I said, no drinking at all. Next day, you have to understand French culture. <laughs> a friend offers you a glass of wine and you refuse it, it's considered an insult. And I said, well, I think even in France they'll understand if you say that my doctor says no, that it's okay. And the Buddha is traditionally considered a doctor, so you're not lying. <laughs> and you don't have to tell exactly which disease you're treating. <laughs> Next day, suppose on the table there's French bread right out of the oven, nice, warm, crispy, some camembert au point, and then a bottle of pomar, which I'd never heard of before, but apparently it was extremely expensive wine. I consult my doctor, would he recommend Coke Light? <laughs> and so my answer was, the Buddha is not an American capitalist. He'd recommend San Pellegrino. <laughs> so, so it is. these precepts are meant to be across the board. Um, some people say that they don't like them because they're too hard and dried, or too, what's the word? Too cut and dried. But it's, I think it's better to see them as, you know, clear, clear cut. You know, the times when you're tempted to break a precept or when you know, you're, there's a danger or you're emotionally upset or something like that, and you need something really clear and simple to remind you, no, 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 you don't do this at all. Otherwise your emotion takes over and you forget. So the precepts are meant to be very clear cut. Um, the, the one that probably deserves the most discussion is the precept against lying. Now, the Buddha says, it is okay to hold back information if you think the other person is going to abuse that information. But 
whatever you do say is is a correct representation of what you what you think or what you know. So that means there's something you just hold back. You're not lying. You're not. There's, you may the person may end up being deceived. The classic case is you've got Jews up in the attic. There's Nazis at the door, and they ask you, you have Jews in the attic, and they're going to check the attic anyhow, no matter what you say. So it's, there's no purpose in lying. But you can say, I have nothing shameless in this house. And if you can say that with enough conviction, they'll, they might believe you. You never know. And it, this may seem like splitting hairs, but it's important that if, if you actually did lie and say, no, I have no Jews, but they go and find them anyhow, they're going to take you down with the Jews. And they're going to torture you all. And they're going to torture you with the fact that you lied. So you don't want that. What you say is a correct representation of the truth. Which means that if you are hiding Jews in your attic, you better think up something really good to an, you know, good answer for the Nazis when they come. Which is why they want to teach you. You want to teach you want to teach her to say, okay, this is one of the things you can say. Because this is, what, again, one of those areas where it's good to have a noble, noble friend, so you can see the noble friend in operation. You say, oh, this is how they handled that. This is how they handled this. There was a, a man who had been a student of a John Fuang's years before I was in Thailand. And he came and visited one time. And this was after John Fuang had passed away. And he said, when he was a young man, he was a monk staying with a John Fuang. And there was this one other monk who got really upset. John Fung had something, said something very sharp to him in front of a lot of other people. And he said, I'm just going to go, go I'm gonna get it back at him. And so this guy who was telling it was concerned about a John Fung. So he kind of stayed around the hut in case that other monk came up and was, was, might try to hit him or do something, do him physical harm. And so the monk at one point did come up to the hut and started speaking to a John Fung. And then a John Fung said something to him. And the guy just kind of melted, bowed down, left. I always wanted to know, what did he say? <laughs> and the man said, I can't remember. <laughs> but there were other times when I saw John Fung deal with people who were very, very difficult. They said, oh, this is how you handle this kind of person. It's good to see that in action. Because part of having the precepts is just precisely this, learning to think your way through something. How would I respond if so-and-so did this, or said this, or asked this information that I don't want to divulge? It's just, you know, as I listen to the answer about the Jew in the attic, mm -hmm. I don't know that I would be that clever in that moment. I mean, that's this is why I just told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so if the, the American brown shirts ever come to Bellingham, <laughs> you can be prepared. Anything else on virtue? Yes. Yeah, no. Um, you have four things for right speech. No lying, no, st no 
harsh speech, no divisive speech, and no idle chatter. Now, there's a precept for only one of those, which is the precept against lying. There's, there's no, there are no situations, because all the precepts are things that are across the board, you don't do this. It's a promise you make to yourself, no circumstances. Now, in terms of divisive speech, strictly speaking, divisive speech is when you see that a friendship is forming and you're trying to break it up, or there, a friendship already is there and you're trying to break it up. Now, there are some cases where if you know somebody has been you know, really you know, horrible with women and one of your close friends is suddenly getting involved with this guy, you say, hmm, maybe I should warn her. And you say, for her safety, you can, you can tell her. Now, technically, that would be divisive speech, but this is a case in which it's okay, which is why there's no precept against it. The same thing with harsh speech. There are times when, you know, when you're telling your <coughs> children to do something and they're not listening, and you, you have to make it you know, very obvious, okay, this is really important. And so you may say something a little harsh. I mean, there was a time when Devadatta wanted to become, you know, take over the Sangha. And the Buddha said, you know, I wouldn't even give, this, give, in, give the Sangha to, to Sariputta or Moggallana, much less to a lickspittle like you. Now, lickspittle is one of those great old insults we don't hear much of anymore. But what it means is, you know, it's somebody, if somebody else has spit something out, you take it up and you, you, you eat it. Yeah, so. <laughs> so that's pretty harsh, you know. <laughs> but the Buddha wanted to, one, let Devadatta know that he was getting off course, and two, anybody else who might be listening in. So a couple times when even the Buddha himself was quite harsh, we get this impression that the Buddha was only sweetness and light and just kind of floating around. But he could be very, very harsh with people. One of his, every time that uh, a monk did something stupid that for which the Buddha was going to have to put out a rule, um, almost every time, not all the time, but many times, it was, there was this, you worthless man, why are you doing this, acting this way? It's harsh. Yeah. And in terms of idle chatter, there's no way anybody could have a precept against idle chatter. <laughs> We'd be breaking it all the time. <laughs> I mean, idle chatter is basically you open your mouth and you have no idea what's going to come out. You just open it up and look, sort of just to see. <laughs> and there are times when a little bit of idle chatter is useful for its social grease to keep the group going. In which case, it's not really wrong speech, but it's th these are these exemptions. It's the only thing, the only one where there is no exemption, and that's for for lying. Yes. No, it's someone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie. That's the person who could do anything. Right. And we had a case a couple of years back where there was a Dharma teacher who was saying, basically, you know, there are cases when it's, it's actually the moral thing is to, to do is to lie. And I said, okay, that's a shameless liar. So who knows what else he might do? There was a book on truth-telling, and <laughs> the history behind this book was that this British philosopher, I've forgotten his name now, um, was cheating on his wife. And the wife was suspicious, and so she started opening his mail. 
And then she told him, someone has been opening your mail. <laughs> and it took him a while to figure out who that someone was. <laughs> and he got really upset that she would feel that she wasn't lying when she said that. And so he wrote a whole book on, on truth-telling. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, you're cheating on your wife. <laughs> She was not lying at all. And she said, I didn't lie. No. And so, he, and so he, took, he took offense at this and he wrote a whole book trying to say why she was lying. Um, this, is, this is what philosophy can do for you. <laughs> and you know, there are a couple of great cases. I think there was some saint back in the Middle Ages who was being persecuted or there was some political, like a king or something, sent out his men to find this guy to you know, bring him to jail. And so he was trying to escape. And he was going in a boat and he happened to pass them. Some of the soldiers were out looking for them. So they said, have you seen so-and-so? He said, he's not far from here. <laughs> yes. So, so, but I was just about to say to you that the whole, one of the reasons we have the precepts is so you can start thinking quickly. How do I keep my precept and at the same time not divulge unfortunate information? Or how do I keep my precept and even make sure the ants don't get into the, into the kitchen or the cockroaches? And for that, you, you find that you have to start learning a lot about ant and cockroach behavior, which is good. You, know, you start thinking about how can I not kill these beings but at the same time not let them get into areas where I don't want them. So it's an exercise in learning how to think, think your way through. Okay, I'm not, I didn't take a precept not to harm any living creature. Um, the precept is you don't either kill or tell somebody else to kill. And the rules for the monks are if we hear, see, or suspect that someone killed an animal for the purpose of feeding us, we cannot eat that meat. But, but aside from that, any meat that's already on the market, people buy that, they fix the food for the monks, that's considered okay. Now, Someone brought up the issue of the Buddha one time, that why aren't the monks vegetarian? He said, this is strict enough. Perhaps he saw that, I mean, there are some people who genetically cannot live on a vegetarian diet. So he left that open. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you want to be a vegetarian, that's fine. Yeah. And if you don't, I mean, if you can't be a vegetarian, just follow that procedure. You know, you're not going to go down to the restaurant where they have fish and things swimming around and, and you don't point and say, this is the one I want. No. But if the meat has already been killed, you can go down and you buy it, that's fine. If, as long as I don't see or hear or suspect. <laughs> but if I go into your house and I see fishing rods on the... <laughs> I might ask you, you know, did you... Cook? <laughs> yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. I spread lots of goodwill to the cow. Dedicate the merit of my practice that day for all the meat that I ate. If my practice is good enough, yes. Yeah, if my practice is good enough, yes. Anything else in the precepts? Okay, the next topic would be heaven. The Buddha, we basically talk, when he talks about the rewards of generosity, he, the rewards of virtue, he will talk about rewards in this lifetime, and then he'll, at the end he'll say, and also when this person dies, he'll go to a good destination to one of the heavenly worlds. Um, in Buddhism there are heavens. They are not permanent. You don't go there forever. You go there on the, for, the, through the force of your karma, your good karma in this case. And when that good karma runs out, then you come back down. And depending on how much gets run out, you can, you can make a soft landing in the human realm, or you make a hard landing in some of the lower realms. But that's, that's when we start getting back into the, into the drawbacks of sensuality. The heavens have three main levels. There's the sensual heavens, where there are basically nice sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. There are the heavens of form, which correspond to the four jhanas. On the, to on the topic of on the topic of heaven, we're still in the map on page on number six. Remember, the Buddha talked about talk on virtue, talk on heaven. Okay, so we're going to talk about heaven. <laughs> we're on patches number six, line two. We did giving, virtue, now we're talking about heaven. Okay. <laughs> the heavens of form correspond to the four jhanas, and then the formless heavens, which correspond to the formless jhanas. Space, um, infinite consciousness, nothingness, neither perception or non-perception. And what's interesting in the canon is the Buddha has a few little details on the heavens here and there, but not much. But however, there are two big suttas devoted to hell. <laughs> it goes into a lot of detail on hell. <laughs> um, so there's really not much to say about the heavens except that the Buddha compares it. He says, suppose that you were a king with all the treasures that a king might have, who was well loved by his people, who lived in a peaceful kingdom, you weren't having to go out and do any battle. Think of all the happiness that king would have. He says, that's not even a sliver of the happiness you have in heaven. That's as much detail as he gives. That plus, you probably heard the story about Nanda, who was the Buddha's younger brother. And the story goes that Nanda saw other members of his family were ordaining, so he kind of went along with them, but his heart wasn't 100% in it. And then he starts thinking, you know, I, I, I'm getting tired of this practice as a monk. And so he goes basically to tell the Buddha that he wants to quit. And the Buddha says, look, let me show you something. And he takes him up to heaven. And he shows him all the heavenly nymphs. And then he says, now compared to the women you left behind, 
what do you think about these heavenly nymphs? And they said, compared to the heavenly nymphs, the women I left behind were like cauterized monkeys with their nose and their ears cut off. <laughs> and the Buddha said, okay, if you, want, if you want to have these heavenly nymphs in your next life, then stay as a monk. So, <laughs> and so Nanda goes down, he starts practicing seriously. Well, the other monks find out what he's practicing for, and they start making fun of him. Say, so, oh, he's he's he's, being, he's a monk because he wants the wages. You know, he's he's working, he's, he's a wage la, wage laborer, and, and he's he's doing this to earn the wages of the, the heavenly nymphs. So then he gets really embarrassed, and so he practices seriously, and then finally becomes an arahant, and then, then goes back and tells the Buddha about that promise you made. I'm not interested anymore. So, so, so that's one of the few details about heaven we have is that the they call them nymphs, the dove-footed nymphs. Which you probably know in India, they like to put henna on women's palms and soles of their feet. For some reason, they thought that was really attractive, and so apparently they, that's what the nymphs lived like, looked like. So that's all they know about heaven. But then the Buddha quickly goes on to talk about the drawbacks of sensuality. In other words, okay, no matter how good it gets up in heaven, you're going to fall. So it's impermanent, and when you fall, you tend to fall pretty hard. John Fuang had a couple of students who were extremely difficult people. Nothing was ever good enough for them. And he said, these people were devas in a previous lifetime. Devas, inhabitants of the heavens. And so nothing is good enough. They got used to things really being nice, and they come back down again, and they just don't like it. But then the Buddha goes on to other drawbacks of sensuality. I mean, when you're looking for your happiness in sensual pleasures, in thoughts of sensuality, he says, it's like a dog eating, chewing on some bones, which has, they have no meat. In other words, you chew and chew and chew, and you get some taste out of it, but the taste is your own saliva. There's no real nourishment there. He said, it's like being a hawk with a piece of meat, and other hawks and vultures and other birds going to come into it, try to take that piece of meat away from you. And if you don't let, it go, get, let go of it, they're going to tear you apart. He compares it to like someone who has borrowed goods, the owners can come and take it away anytime. In other words, if you're looking for your happiness and sensuality, you're having to depend on other people to provide you with what you want, and they could take it back at any time. So these are some of the, the ways, the, the analogies the Buddha gives for the drawbacks of sensuality. And so when you begin to see, you know, happiness is dependent on sensuality, places you in a position of weakness, it places you in a position of hunger. It might be good to look for happiness which is not based on sensuality. That's what renunciation is. You find a pleasure. It's not that you're depriving yourself of pleasure or happiness. You're actually looking for a pleasure that is not dependent on sensuality, i.e., that would be the pleasure of concentration for the mind to settle down and find a sense of well-being in that sense of the body, as we said, as the body, as you feel it from within. And at that point, the Buddha said, then you're ready for the Four Noble Truths. So you see where the Buddha is taking. He starts out with the principle on, on karma, basically, then talk about the rewards of generosity, the rewards of virtue, that come both in this lifetime and in the future lifetimes. But then saying even those rewards have their drawbacks. It's almost like it's a nasty trick. You work hard to get the rewards that come from these things, but then if you get attached to them, you're going to fall. He said the best thing to do is, instead of going in, in that cycle, He's trying to see it would be a good thing to get out of the cycle, to look for happiness that's not dependent on sensuality. 
And when you see that, that's when you're ready to learn the Four Noble Truths. So let's see what else in the notes here. Any questions on any of that? Well, it's important to believe in the basic principles, because when the Buddha said for mundane right view, part of it is there is the results of good and bad actions, and also there are there's this world and there are other worlds that you can go to, and there are what he said there are spontaneously reborn beings, which means beings that are born they don't have to go through childhood they just boom they appear, and that the places where you do that would either be in the heavens or down in the lower realms, you know, like the hungry ghosts and, and the denizens of hell. But so that's basic, basic right view. So again, you take that as a working hypothesis. The Buddha never tried to prove this. And you, you, there are books out there now where they say they've proven rebirth. No, they haven't. <laughs> but he says, if you, you look at the people who take this on as a working hypothesis, the way they act is going to tend to be more careful, more heedful, more responsible that people believe that it doesn't really matter what you do, or that the end of life is a nothingness, so you just basically try to find whatever pleasure you can now. Now the Buddha, when people, the Buddha would ask people, do devas exist? He would basically say, what kind of devas are you talking about? It turned out that was one of those trick questions in ancient India, because they called kings devas as well. And so if you say devas don't exist, that's like denying the fact that kings are kings, and kings would get upset, you know. Um, if you say devas do exist, they say, "Well, show me." And the Buddha was not was not that kind of person. There was a retreat where I was teaching in Brazil this last year, and there was this one guy. He said, "I hear monks have psychic powers. Show me." And I said, "We're not performing animals." <laughs> and then I happened to mention devas and rebirth in another Dharma talk, and in the question box, one of the questions came up: "Is look, why don't we have to hear this supernatural stuff?" I don't believe anything I can't see with my own eyes. And then two questions afterward that was, why is it that Western Buddhist teachers are so reluctant to talk about the supernatural aspects of the tradition? <laughs> and so for the second question, I pointed to the first. <laughs> and I said, you know, Western Buddhism is very sensitive to market forces. And when they see questions like this, they shy away, you know. But for the first question, I said, how do you know the things you see with your eye are true? I mean, we could be living in the matrix. This could, this could all be, you know, make-believe. <laughs> but what we do know is that there is suffering, and that's real. So the question is, why are you suffering? What are you doing to cause the suffering? And there's suffering in a totally natural world, and there's suffering in supernatural worlds. I mean, some people have the karma to just see the natural world, and that's it. Other people have the karma that they're in touch with other, other things. So the Buddha has teachings for both sides. But for the people who absolutely deny the possibility that there could be other levels, he's not willing to teach them. He said, at least you have to be open to the possibility. I wouldn't say agnostic, but say, give, take it on as a working hypothesis, knowing that you don't know, but then saying, well, this is a good assumption to have. Okay, just make sure, watch out for the P's and B's, okay? okay. <laughs> the, the, the levels of heaven, the, the sensual heavens? Yeah, form and then the formless. 
thought you were going to ask. Yeah. We, we recommend a heaven. <laughs> There's not that much in the canon. I just remembered one other detail. It's a great story. In the canon, that talks about this one woman who was providing food for a couple of monks, and then all three of them die, and she goes to one of the higher sensual heavens. They call it the, the contended devas, and that's concerned where the, the devas are rather mature. In fact, that's supposed to be where the future Buddha is right now. Dusita, yeah. And so she wanted to check out, what about these monks that I was feeding? Where are they? Well, it turns out they're Gandharvas. Kuntan. And the Gandharvas are kind of the teenagers of the deva world. They like fast cars, they like music, they like sex. And, and so she went down, she gave them a piece of her mind. She said, look, I did not feed you, so you become Gandharvas. <laughs> and so one of the monks feels embarrassed, and so he goes off and meditates and goes up to a higher level. But the other monk doesn't care. He's, he's just too embroiled in his, in his pleasures. Now sometimes you hear that you cannot practice the Dharma in the heavens, and that's not true. There are some devas who are serious enough about not wanting to fall, that they actually do listen to the Dharma and can actually gain awakening. Um, there's another passage where one of the, the Buddha is leaving after the rains retreat and one of his cousins comes and asks him, okay, suppose one of our relatives is, is dying or somebody I know here is dying while you're away. What kind of advice should I give that person as they die? And the first piece of advice is, are you worried about anything concerning your family or your work? And if so, put those worries aside. There's nothing you can do now. Are you worried about leaving human sensual pleasures? And if the person says yes, then he says, well, actually, there's a level of devas called the four great kings. They have better pleasures. Put your mind in that level. Okay, and they say, okay, I'm, I'm going to go for the four great kings. Okay, there's another level that's higher than that, the devas of the 33. Put your mind on that level. And it kind of goes up the ladder. And then finally says, okay, you get to the Brahmas, and so well, and the Brahmas are better off than the devas in the sensual realm. But even the Brahmas suffer from a sense of self-identity, and that's what's causing them to suffer. If you can put self-identity out of your mind, then you'll be better off. And you can actually gain awakening at the moment of death. So that's another use of the thinking about the heavens. Well, that's been, that's been an issue ever since ever since they decided that the not self teaching was a no self teaching. Then all these questions come out, and it doesn't make sense. Because what the Buddha was very careful about was when people asked him about rebirth, he never talked about what it was that got reborn. And they go down through this long list of the various people in the time of the Buddha who, on the one hand, didn't believe in rebirth at all, and then there were people who def who did believe in rebirth, but the question came: okay, what gets reborn? And the Buddha avoided that entirely, saying, look, what gets reborn is not the issue. The issue is how does it happen? That's what, is it, what events in the mind lead to rebirth? And that's something you can, you can discuss. I mean, it's craving and clinging. And so you, you put an end to craving and clinging, there's not going to be that process anymore. So the question of what is not the question. The question is how. How does it happen? There's a belief in rebirth. There's also the belief that once you've said no to everything else, then you become one with Brahma. So that your real self is Brahma. I mean, that was one of their, one of the Upanishadic. Well, even there, they had a sense of self. It was a sense of self in one with Brahma. And again, the Buddha 
talked about there were these all these various theories about what yourself is and what it's not. He said, but the actual question itself is not a question to answer. For him, the question is, okay, why is there suffering? How do we put an end to that? Once you can answer that question, you solve all the problems. Some are before and some are after, and we don't know which. Um, one thing that is important to know is that sometimes they talk about the Upanishadic view of the self, which is that you know self is the same as Brahman. Actually, there are many views of the self in the, in the Upanishads. I did a survey one time of just 16 of them, and I found nine different self theories. And they tend to fall into a. There's a pattern the Buddha Dharati said. There's the belief that the self is either uh, either possessed of form and finite, like say yourself is your body, or self is possessed of form and infinite. You have an infinite self that has a body, or the self is formless and finite, like the Christian view of a soul. You know, the soul is a finite thing, but it is formless. Or if the self is formless and infinite. And then in either of those cases you can have either is already that way, or it will become that way automatically at death, or it there's a way that you can make it that way. And so that gives you what four? Twelve. That gives you twelve variations. Out of those twelve, you can find eight or nine of those in the Upanishads. Okay, as far as we know, two things. One is that you know that the the biography we have of John Mun, where he's talking a lot about Davis. It turns out he didn't talk about it that much. Well, he talked about it with certain people. When John Mahabo was doing his research on the John Mun biography. He was talking with John Chobb, who was a student of John Mun. Now, John Chobb had a lot of experience with Davis, and basically, John Mun's policy of teaching was: if someone is having that particular problem, then he would talk about his own experiences to give some idea. Well, this is how you handle this problem. This is how you handle that problem. And the number one issue is when you're dealing with visions of Davis, is don't immediately assume that it really is a Deva. The question is not who is it. The question is what lesson can I learn from this vision. Now that gets left out in the biography, but it's again it's the beliefs in the different devas and people having experiences with devas. I mean that, that's that's a very common experience in, in Asia among meditators. For for some reason it's not so common here. Okay, again again he didn't talk about it that much. In the biography they talk a lot about it. And John Fuang, who studied with a John Mun, who actually was having lots of these experiences himself. He would get strongly criticized with a, by a John Mun on that. He said, "Look, we're not here to check out the Davis. <laughs> we're here to work with our own defilements." And and so, and John Mun, John Fuhrman became extremely circumspect about this. But he did have some students who were having this experience, and I overheard him as he was teaching them. He said, "Oh yeah, it was quite detailed. His knowledge." And every every now and then he'd let something slip. My favorite time was. <laughs> We had a storm come through the monastery, and this <clears throat> we were kind of walking around the monastery the next day to sort of survey the damage that was done. We had this big mango tree that was right next to a papaya tree, and one of the limbs of the mango tree had gone splat down on the papaya tree, and this papaya tree was flat on the ground. And John Fuang looked at it and he said, well, that's what you get for living in a papaya tree. <laughs> And I, have you ever seen the, 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 the Pressed Fairy book? Has anyone ever seen that book? The Pressed Fairy book? Yeah. 
maybe Preston, maybe the Squashed Fairy Book or something like that. It came out in the, a couple of decades ago. And it's a story about this young girl who's out in the, in, the, in, the, in the garden behind the house. And these fairies come to her and she's got this little book where it's supposed to be pressing flowers. So she... <laughs> 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 and so all these drawings of squashed fairies. You know? <laughs> and so that immediately went through my mind as I saw as I went over, went over a tree Dave was living in the papaya tree. <laughs> Well, apparently he took his brother, yeah. There are not that many other accounts of him taking anybody along, but there's that one. Ananda asked the Buddha one time, is it possible for you to go you know, physically up to the Brahma worlds? And he said he could. But his explanation is one of those things that's hard to understand. It's not safe. Really. I mean, you don't want to go out to other realms. You want to stay inside your body. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't go for that workshop. <laughs> Okay, well, it's a kind of hypnotism. It's a kind of hypnotism. And I, I, would, I would, one, I would stay away from that. And two, I mean, it is possible for you to leave your body, but it's not a safe thing to do. You don't know how to come back. And while you're away, someone else might move in, which you don't want. I had a student one time who was working hard one day. And he sat down to meditate, and he lay down in the ordination hall. And all of a sudden he found himself floating up at the ceiling, and his body was down on the floor. And his first thought was, cool. And he said, let's see if I can go outside. And so he kind of floated down, and there was a window that was closed, and he tried to open the window, but because he didn't have a physical body, he couldn't open the window. So the next day he worked hard all day, lay down, but before he laid down, he opened the window. <laughs> And so sure enough, boom, he was up out, and then he came floating down. And just as he was going out the window, he had this vision of a John Lee saying, you get the hell back in there, it's dangerous out here. <laughs> so whoop, he's back. That was that. It's, I mean, it's so dangerous and it's not going to get you to the noble, the noble realms, the noble attainments. Yeah, you can, you can, you can, you can. Um, there is a... <clears throat> Now that we're on the topic of Davis, maybe I should do a book on this topic. Um, <laughs> although, have you seen the book, The Buddha Smiles? Most of the treatments of Davis in the, in the canon are humorous. And I think that tells us a lot right there. Don't take this all that seriously. And you watch out, these Davis, there's some Davis just really don't know what they're doing. Like there's this one story of a Deva who propositions a monk. Obviously the Deva doesn't know what she's doing. Um, but in this particular one, Saka, one of the kings of the Devas, wants to come and see the Buddha. And he wants to get the Buddha in the right mood to talk to Devas, so he sends his musician to play a little tune and sing a song. And so the song is, <laughs> he talks, it's a song he's delivering to his lady love about how you know, he loves her just as much as the Arahants love the Dharma. And it goes on comparing different aspects of the Dharma to his lust for this woman. And you can imagine what the Buddha is thinking, boy, these devas are really, really deluded. You know? <laughs> and so, but being a polite person, the Buddha says, oh, that was, a, you know, the song was very nice, the, the words fit the melody, the melody fit the words. When did you compose this? And he said, basically, it was on the night of your awakening, when all the other devas in the universe were, were coming to see you. I was off composing this and singing this to my lady love. 
So it's not all the devas went to see the Buddha again awaken in <laughs> Some of them can be, yes. No, some of them are really nice, from what I've been heard. I mean, I haven't had that many dealings. <laughs> well, this, you know, there are some people who are pretty haughty and arrogant about their virtue, you know. And it's not noble virtue in that case. I mean, one of the things about noble virtue is that you don't exalt yourself and disparage others over the fact that you are virtuous and these people are not. But then there are people who, you know, are pretty haughty. It's going to be an individual kind of thing, as far as I know. It's interesting that in ancient Indian art, the, the art that you have right after the Buddha died, as soon as you start seeing representations of Buddha's cosmos and everything, the devas are very individualized, whereas as it goes on they get more and more kind of formulaic, which gives you the sense that perhaps in the early, among the early Sangha and the early followers of the Buddha, they actually did have you know, personal experience with these things, and so they had a very individualistic view. And then over time the texts take over and then it becomes more, more standardized. Well, he knows he's going to have to come back someplace, so he wants to come back to a place where he can practice. Yeah, but apparently he felt that, okay, he could probably only get as far as the stream editor up there, which is not bad. But he wants to come back down. And, it's not the only realm, but it's it's one of the realms where you can practice. Put it that way. Well, we it's the, the more suffering you have up to a point that actually can you know can stir you to practice. If it's too much suffering, you don't have the strength. Apparently, we have just the right amount <laughs> to drive us crazy, but not so crazy that we don't practice. We're not selling it. <laughs> We're not selling it. You don't have to buy in. Um, <laughs> But, but try it on as a working hypothesis. You know, they have those programs, you know, you live this year as if it were your last. Well, how about living this year as if you really believed in karma and rebirth, you know, and seeing what that would do. No, it, it focuses it back because you realize you know, what, what it depends on is what you're doing here and now. You want to be really skillful here and now. In order to, and you get, that can be kind of in the back of your mind. But you say, I've got to be really careful right here and now. When the Buddha is talking about being here and now, it's always in the context of death contemplation. Because you don't, you realize you don't know how much time you have left, but you do have right now. And you also know there's work that has to be done right here, right now. So, right here, this is why I'm focusing here right now, is because there's work that I've got to do and I don't know how much longer I have to do it. And the contemplation of, you know, when you see the sunset, Remind yourself, this could be my last night, am I ready to go? And the immediate answer is no. So, okay, what's getting in the way? What would keep me back? Work on that. And then again, the morning of the sunrise. This might be my last sunrise, am I ready to go? Well, if I'm not, there's work to be done. Focus on that right now. Okay, well, you, because the work that needs to be done is that you're going to be reborn based on your mind state. Is there anything in your mind state that would drag you down? Give it a try. I mean, it's, it's, not the, it's not the case that everybody taught rebirth or everybody taught karma back in the Buddhist time. It was a controversial issue. A lot of people said nothing is reborn, it, you know, it's at the end, that's it. Or some people said there is rebirth, but it has nothing to do with your karma. That was also taught. 
And you know, there were a lot of issues that were controversial in the Buddhist time that the Buddha never touched. He never went there. And he said, okay, there are issues that are not related to the end of suffering. I'm not going to discuss them. There are issues that are related to the end of suffering. I'll discuss that. So he saw that this is an issue that was related because it has to do with your actions, your motivation. Because if you really believe that you know, there's nothing after physical death, then you will do everything you can to survive regardless. Lie, kill, steal, cheat, whatever. Whereas if you realize, okay, it's my virtue and my right views, those are my most important possession, even more important than my life, then you're really going to work on your virtue. You're going to stick with it regardless. Well, if you feel that, okay, my, all, I have to, all that has to do with my survival is the survival of this body, and there, would, there might come a point where you say, okay, it's either my survival or that person's survival. Now, I'm not saying you're going to go out and lie, steal, and cheat all the time, but there, there would come a point where there could come a point where you'd have to have the choice. If you, if you believed in rebirth, you say, I've got to make sure that I behave skillfully. I can't harm anybody. So maybe I would have to be willing to let that person kill me. At that point, you say, okay, do, if, but if I'm not going to be around, what, what use is my respect? But if you're not there to feel, but if you don't think you're going to be there to feel in five minutes, can you give it a try for a while? At least try the belief in rebirth for a while? Well, it's not a physiological process. Okay, I'd ask you then to examine exactly where that, your idea of the impossibility comes from. What does science know about this? And just because science can't measure it, does that mean it can't happen? Well, in the other words, making yourself believe in it, say, suppose. <laughs> the Buddha's not asking you to say the world is flat. He's saying maybe, maybe it's a possibility that's a little bit beyond what you thought was possible. I mean, it's not possible that the world's going to be flat, but it is possible that there could be a process that the you know, craving and clinging don't need to depend on the body. And the mind doesn't need to depend on the body. They, the mind, consciousness can depend on craving and clinging, and that's enough to keep going. For the mind to keep, for consciousness to keep going, and not dependent on a body. I mean, it's there in the analysis of dependent co-arising. Consciousness comes before the body. Give it a try. Okay. <laughs> it's, I'm not asking you to believe that the Earth is flat. You know, <laughs> you don't see it so much. I mean, you're you're, you're with other you're we're with like-minded people, but then like-minded people can lead the like-minded people to believe all kinds of stuff. But even in the, the, uh, India, the Buddha, there was not every not everybody was agreed on this issue. But he said, for the sake of putting it into suffering, try it on. Yeah. I still like the idea of try it on for a year, because <laughs> I think part of it is many of us feel that okay, this is some weird culture that's being forced on us, and we resist. Whereas again, even in, in, in the Buddha, India, the Buddha's time, it was not an accepted part of the culture. And the Buddha said, you know, it would be wise to see, see you know, the, present the present rewards of virtue. And also keep in mind that there will be future rewards, both for the virtue and for the generosity and for your meditation. And it would be good for you. I, mean, I don't think he would have taught this otherwise, because it was a choice on his part. You know, he said all those things he learned in his awakening, he taught only the things that were really relevant. I became more open-minded about it as a result of that. 
But there does come a point in your meditation where it is confirmed, okay, you may not know the details, but yes, you know that it happened. It has been happening for a long time and has the potential to go on for a long time if you don't do something about it. And that can be confirmed in the meditation. And this is the point that's outside of culture. Yeah, the Buddha says you're not really going to know until stream entry. Up at that point there always will be some doubt. My issue is, you know, again, it's how are you defining yourself? The Buddha said, however you define yourself, you're going to limit yourself. And I had this discussion with a, another Buddhist teacher one time, and he was saying that you know, from the point of view of physics and the point of view of psychology, I can't accept the idea of rebirth. And so I said, I'm going to teach the, teach the Dharma within my ideas of what a human being is. And I said, well, that's precisely what the Buddha said not to do. Instead, he didn't start out with a definition, this is what a human being is, and therefore this is what a human being can know or do. Basically, let's train the mind, see what the mind can do when it's trained. And that will change your idea of what you are, or what you're, or what you're capable of. And then I was, <laughs> I made an analogy he did not like, maybe I shouldn't tell it to you, so I'm telling it to you. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> You had a question? Mm -hmm. Well, you have some doubt, but you, <laughs> there's always going to be a little bit of doubt. But you can say, well, he seems trustworthy, the Buddha seems trustworthy. So you give him the benefit of the doubt, i.e., try it on as a working hypothesis. I mean, there will come a point where it'll be, it'll be established for it, but he says, don't wait until then. To think about the possibility. Right. I'll give you one analogy, and then we break. And the analogy is this: person comes to see the Buddha, and then he goes back and tells his friend, "Hey, that Buddha—he's really a Buddha. <laughs> he really knows what he's talking about." And the friend says, "Well, how do you know?" And he says, well, I've seen other people come and they're planning to dispute with the Buddha and prove him wrong, but in the end they, in the end they turn out convinced by him. And so the friend says, gee, I want to meet this Buddha someday. And so he goes to see the Buddha and he gives the, for, for example, excuse me, back up, then he gives the analogy, he says it's like an elephant hunter goes, goes into, the, into the forest and he sees some big footprints of an elephant, he knows this has got to be a bull elephant. So the friend goes to see the Buddha and he tells, tells the Buddha what the other friend had told him about this analogy of the, the footprints of the elephant. And the Buddha says, you know, that's not the right use of that analogy. I'll explain the right use of the analogy. He says, okay, the experienced bull elephant hunter needs a large male elephant to do his heavy work. So he goes into the forest, he sees the big footprints. Now he doesn't immediately jump to the conclusion that this has got to be a bull elephant. Why? Because there's some dwarf females with big feet. <laughs> and bear with me, okay? <laughs> they can't do the work. They're too small. He says, but, he says, it looks promising, so he follows them. And then he comes to some scratch marks high up in the trees. Now he doesn't come to the conclusion those must be the scratch marks of the big bull elephant's tusks because there are some tall, skinny females who have tusks, and maybe they, <laughs> maybe they did that. He says, but it still looks promising. And then he comes, finally comes to a clearing, and there it is, big bull elephant. He says, okay, now he knows. That's the big bull elephant. 
And so he says, in the same way, and he goes through the different stages of the practice. And he says, even the practice of jhana, those are just the footprints. The psychic powers, those are the scratch marks. The seeing of the big bull elephant, that's when you have your first experience of awakening. You really know, okay, the Buddha really was the Buddha. Up to that point, you don't know. But he says it looks promising, so you follow. So he's not asking you, you know, I, I swear that I have allegiance to him, and, you know, the Buddha, my Lord, my Lord, Savior. And the, no, it's not that kind of thing. He said, well, give it a try. Because again, it's, as I was saying earlier, it's, a lot of the problem has to do with how we in the West define ourselves as people. And the Buddha is saying, put that definition aside for the time being and just look at what happens when you train the mind. So let's break and come back here at 3.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.